Welcome to the podcast, Phenomenosophy, Episode 6, The Situation Critical. The situation is critical. Today, there are divisive ideologies prevalent in our society that are deeply affecting our social fabric. These insidious ideologies are generating division through racism, fear, guilt, anger, victimhood, and hatred under the guise of inclusivity, equality, justice, and fairness. We will be looking at critical theories, identity politics, power structures, privilege, and postmodernism. Our goal is to arrive at a rational way of approaching the principles of inclusivity, equality, justice, and fairness in a way that bridges the divide and effectively integrates these principles in a meaningful way into our society. How do we create lasting peace, cooperation, solidarity, inclusivity, equality, justice, and fairness for all. How are you doing today, Gingy? Up, what's up? Uh, doing pretty good, man. Pretty good. I'm excited for this conversation. Yes. It, is, uh, it is much needed. So, I uh, wanted to begin, I guess, by breaking down the uh, elements of critical theory. And did you like did you like my uh, hint of alarmism there in the in the intro? <laughs> yeah, little uh, little trigger warning. <laughs> trigger warning. <laughs> um, That's a thing now, man. Trigger warning. Everyone's people put that at the beginning of videos and blog posts and stuff like that. For I feel like they should put it at the beginning of anything <laughs> that goes public. <laughs> really. And so here's your trigger warning. <laughs> we're ta- we're talking about <laughs> controversial subjects. Um, okay, so in uh, let's look at the foundational elements or the the main principles behind critical theories in general. It basically it breaks down that whenever you have disparity in outcome and equity then you therefore there is a if it's critical race theory there is racism if it's uh feminist theory then it's uh it's uh sexism sexism right? um critical queer theory then it's uh or some of the words you would use in that uh transphobia or something along those lines right so Specifically, we'll start with uh, critical race theory in that I feel like it's the one that's really being hammered and pushed. Not that those other critical theories are not being hammered currently and definitely prevalent in showing up in all aspects of our culture and society. But So just a, a little quick, I don't, I don't know really hardly anything about the critical theories. And I, I would assume that there's not a whole lot of people out there understanding that certain ways of thinking or ideologies come from certain critical theories. So understanding that these, these concepts have an origin, to me, is exciting to talk right. about. And so if you want to talk about racism, there is critical race theory, right. you're saying, and that is sort of sets the... The philosophy or the the context? How would you describe the critical race theory 
and it, it will basically it's a philosophy i would say it's rooted in postmodernism and we'll go over that a little later where how it's rooted in postmodernism really all the critical theories are um in my opinion uh whether or not they directly reference back to them i'm unaware of but it's the commonality in it uh with postmodernism is that it's it's a power dynamic it's about it's a power struggle so it's all about p having power over someone something right as a yeah it's a good distinction yeah, to as make. opposed to power with something and i th feel like that that should be uh, a part of the conversation as well where we talk about the distinction between having power over versus having power with and i think that that's probably one of the most damaging aspects of critical theories is that it's pushing for having power over um, as opposed to having power yeah. with so which really relates more to our last episode where we talked about the path to freedom because right. you could create power with anyone anything any situation you choose right. to and and there so we're I, what i'd like to do is by the time we get to the end of this conversation is really come at a point where we address the principles, the, the, the things that critical theories attempt to address, uh, like um, uh, inequality, uh, uh, injustice, unfairness, um, exclusivity, like how, how do we address those things in an effective way as opposed to, because I feel like these theories and the way they've been embodied in, in, and the way they're being implemented are actually creating the opposite of what their proposed intention is, which is, you know, solidarity and inclusiveness. It, it's, it's doing the opposite <laughs> of all those things by creating right. it's divisive in its nature. So let's look at the theories themselves and why they're divisive in their nature. Um, so again, looking at that concept of if, there is an inequality in outcomes, then there is inherent racism. So you. So that's specifically critical yes, race theory. Yes. Um, okay. And the same with, in like, so if we we're looking at feminist theory, we would say, well, if there's inequality in outcome, right, an inequity in outcome between male and female, well, then it's a sexist system. Okay? And so, which. But yeah, we'll get into that. So we'll start with we'll start with critical race theory. So in critical race theory, it because it's because of the power dynamic element of it, it devalues those who are who don't completely adopt the ideology. So it's kind of like a us versus them mentality with its within its structure. So you've heard of uh, recently, you've heard of like. Uh, the concepts of white privilege and anti-racism, right? So in anti-racism, if you're not expressly anti-racist and you don't expressly adopt these ideologies, then you are racist, okay? So there is no middle ground. You either completely adopt this ideology or you are, you are opposed to what they supposedly stand for. Now, if you're a person who sees that these ideologies don't stand for what they say they stand for, you wouldn't necessarily adopt this as an ideology. But you're not necessarily racist. I don't consider... Now, does 
does the theory leave any room for um like something i've done for years now which which you know something i actually think i picked up from you is i don't tend to take a position against something so like anti-racism i don't label racism as a bad thing and i want to attack it and get rid of it however i support things that are not racist putting my energy into things that i want to see in the world and not to put my energy to things i want to get rid of in the world and so does the theory at all provide space for someone who's not necessarily racist but also is not anti-racist <laughs> <laughs> well that that i would say ant the the concept the term anti-racist kind of comes out of critical race theory it's not necessarily a term within the philosophy itself um but it's but it okay. piggybacks okay. on the philosophy and Got so it. it's it they it's born from it so to speak and does it lend itself to having diverging opinions? Not, not necessarily, not really. Like I said, it's like you either adopt the ideology as a whole or you are expressly standing against what it supposedly stands for. So the, I, I'd say the main problem is the, the assumption or presumption that if there's unequal outcomes within a culture or a society that it is inherently racist. And this is why we're seeing so much talk about systemic racism, right? Is that, well, uh, one example, if we're again talking about critical race theory is, well, there are proportionately speaking more blacks in prison than they represent in proportion to the population. So they make up 13% of the population, but they make a, a much larger percentage of the prison population. And so you look at that and you say, well, that's an, equal, that, that's an unequal outcome, and therefore the system is racist. Therefore, police are racist because they're the ones who arrest people. Therefore, the courts are racist because they're the ones who sentence people to prison. So I'd say the problem there is in the metrics you're using to actually gauge the inequality. If, if all you're using is a measure of percentage of population, that may not be an adequate way of, of determining what the real issue is. Well, it tells me that the, at the foundation, at the core of the ideology, the critical race mm-hmm. theory, is that we all want to see equal numbers and outcomes across the board. Right. Which may not necessarily be like... If we made sure that in prison we had exactly the same percentages for every race and gender and whatever else, that may not necessarily be an effective way to run society. No. <laughs> Is there a benefit from having all those numbers lined well, up? So it, it really wouldn't because, like, for example, let's look at the inequity of females to males in prison, right? So there, you know, the male prison population is probably, I don't know, 80, 90% (laughs) of the entire prison population, but men only make up 50% approximately of of the population. So that would mean if we wanted equal outcome in prison, that would mean, well, we either have to start letting men out of prison 
stop putting them in prison and start jailing a whole lot more females <laughs> until we get, you know, 50% of the prison population women and 50% of the prison population men. So yes, I do not feel that that would be an effective way of running a society. Um, because then you're really what you're, that, I mean, that is in of itself a sexist system, right? Because you're so saying- So would there be a, a situation where we would want same numbers, same percentages across the board? Uh, and the application for the critical race theory or critical right. whatever theory right. to say we want equal outcomes, where is that effective? Well, I mean, we would like to see, um, I mean, I would say we would like to see, even in the prison population, we would like to see less blacks in prison, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if they, they're making up such a, a disproportional amount of the people in prison, we want to see that number lower because we don't want so many black people in prison. But then we have to look at the real reasons, not just the population metric. The, the population metric doesn't tell us anything because... Again, if all you're going to do is say, well, it's because the system is racist. That is, you're taking so many variables out of the equation of how it actually arrived at that. You know, you can't just claim racism because there is an unequal outcome, just like you can't claim that the prison system is sexist because there aren't enough women in there or there are too many men, however you look at it, right? So you can't look at that as as your starting point that, oh, the the... The system is racist because of the inequality. We have to look at well, what is behind the inequality. What's the real reasons that there is an inequality there? I would start with what is our ideal outcome? What do we want to see? Because to me, if I'm like, <laughs> I want to see less black people in prison, say, right. ideally, you know, cut the number in half. Okay. If there's 100 black guys in prison right now, I want to get 50 of them out. Is right. adopting this theory and saying that the system is racist going to cut that number in half. And so I look at what's an effective way to reach the goal. Well, if, if you could apply this theory to achieve that, you wouldn't be addressing the root problems that are actually creating it. So what you would have is, yeah, okay, so let's say, let's say we're not going to put people, uh, blacks in prison okay? because there's just too many in there. And until that number equals out. So what you have is, okay, typically people who end up in prison are committing crimes. So what that means is that people who are committing crimes are no longer going to prison. What does that mean? That means more crime, right? So that wouldn't necessarily create the result that would, that the society would be accepting of or, or uh, aligned with, right? So we, we would have, you know, possibly more theft, more murder, more things like that. If we just refuse to put these people who do, you know, offend other citizens within our society, then it just, it exasperates the problem. It's like, it gets, it's, it's the snowball effect. It's like, okay, we're, they're committing the crimes. We're not putting them in prison. They're committing the crimes. We're not putting them. So you just have more and more and more and more of crime. And it's almost an incentive for those who may have not have, wouldn't have been criminals, you know, because, because of jail, because of prison. Now they're like, well, ain't, we ain't going to prison for it. Why not? You know? Um, so you have to look. So there are, there are a lot of people I've heard bring up that it's not just 
the legal system that is to blame. It's the monetary system. Right. It's the housing systems. Right. It's the you know food and education system. They're like all of our systems contribute to this inequity of numbers of people in prison right. for whatever reason. And that and that's and so it's about finding all the details. Yes, and that's definitely something that you'd want to look at is like economic disparity. Because I would venture to guess, now I haven't looked up these statistics, but I would bet that if you took income inequality, forget race for a minute, and let's look at the number of people in prison who are in the lower income brackets. And I'll bet you that number is extremely high. Yeah, as a percentage of like, say, middle class, lower class, right. upper class, I bet right. they're very, very similar. Right. Sorry, so not, in, not similar in the amount of people, but I'm sure it's proportionate in the way that the more money you have, the less likely you're in prison. Right. So there is that economic element, which, again, needs to be addressed. So, and, and, and I feel like that that's where we want to end up by the end of this conversation is like, let's look at the things that we can as a community, as a society, focus our time and attention in to really address the real root problems here, which are, which could be these economic disparities, uh, which I find, I, I feel that what we'll find is that these are really, there are issues of culture here that we need to really look at um, within lower income communities and, 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 what, and wherever we find these disparities. Because there are a lot of factors and a lot of variables that we can look at that will really help us to zero in on well, where do we need to put our time and attention to really right. combat this disparity, right? So... Like go after the low-hanging fruit first. <laughs> right. And in the introduction, you know, I, I, in my alarmist language, you know, spoke about the insidious of the ideologies and that the situation is critical. And, and, uh, and the reason I said that is because when you look at the kinds of results that are coming out of these theories, they're actually creating more problems and they're exasperating the problems, exasperating, am I saying that? Exacerbating. Exacerbating the problems (laughs) as opposed to mitigating, right? And, and uh, alleviating issues and so it's like it's creating un um unanticipated side effects right and and it's creating a divisiveness and i and i think like i mean you had spoken uh on another one of the episodes we had done about how uh you would uh, i forgot what you had come across something where they were talking about how people how children were taught and raised in certain ways right and that mm-hmm. If they, that uh, uh, in the black community, if you are taught that you are a victim and that you are being hunted and that you uh, have less chance of success because of your race, that that's going to create a certain mentality within the individual, a a victimness, right? And an entirely different experience of reality. Right. And, 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 And there will be... Uh, I mean, they'll just, I, I can think of all kinds of negative uh, experiences and attitudes that you might take towards life. However, if you're being taught, you're not being taught those things. You're being taught like, oh, you have, you know, you have all the, all the possibilities 
that anyone else has are, are, are there for you. And that anything that you reach for, you can achieve, you know? And so there's a different mentality that's created in that education. That's, and that, that again comes down to culture. And it's not necessarily a race thing. You know, there are, there are people, white people, Asian people, Hispanic people who grow up with these same kind of elements in their education and in their culture of their, whether it's their economic class, whether it's their family culture, whatever it is, but they, they get input that, that hinders them through their beliefs about themselves, right? So, and, and, I, and again, we, gotta get, we really got to hit on this, the power structure or power struggle that, this, that these are rooted in. That at its base, like if we go back again to the roots of the critical theories in postmodernism, it's everything is a power struggle. And it's about having power over. And this is why you can have something like, oh, well, you're a white man. Your opinion doesn't count. Because you're considered oppressor, right? From the, from the standpoint of, the, of postmodernism. The historical standpoint of postmodernism. Right, right, right. And so because you're an, you are an oppressor just by definition, which again is funny because you, you play this out into critical race theory and that is racism. You say somebody, because they're white, opinion doesn't count, that's racist. <laughs> like, there's. I wonder there's no, if there's, there's no like way to a, cut that. Is there an end to that? Because I wonder if all of a sudden, you know, your opinions don't matter because mm-hmm. you're white and you're a man and you're straight and you're whatever else. Right. At some point, you play that game long enough. I feel I would assume that all of a sudden you would end up being the oppressed at some point. Like no longer Absolutely. are you the oppressor. Now you've got an entire society around you, you know, that you have to then fight against and then do the same thing. Now all of a sudden other opinions don't matter. It's, it feels like the, what is that called? The, uh, the pendulum, (laughs) like it's just going to swing the power dynamic back and forth instead of addressing, you know, is having power over people really effective in, in the first place. Yeah. And I don't think it is. And, and that's something that I feel is an important aspect of this conversation because it is rooted in this having power over conversation that the, the, the belief is that because it is perceived that one type of a person has power over another type of a person that they, their opinion doesn't count as much, their they're, uh, they can uh, legitimately, not legitimately, that's the wrong word. They can, uh, they can be discriminated against. Um, for instance, we, the, this word systemic racism right, is used in our society right now quite a bit. Um, it is claimed that our legal systems are systemically racist, that all systems, all systems in the United States are systemically racist. Now, systemically racist by definition or by its original definition, I guess we'd have to find out what the new definition is, but by its 
by its definition means that there's something within this, these systems that expressly are against or are uh, or for or for one race over another, right? Or one sure. gender over another. Um, and that's not necessarily, well, actually, the only example I can think of of systemic racism, for instance, is in, uh, what do they call it, affirmative action, right. where it's like, literally, you can, and this is actually not only against whites now, but it's also against Asians. So it's like, oh, well, we have too many Asians at our school, <laughs> you know, they're, they're disproportionately represented with what they represent in the population. So we're actually going to, you know, uh, give them a negative score in the admissions process so that we get more of the other minorities in there. Because Asians are a minority, but they can legally, through this law of affirmative action, be discriminated against. So that's systemic racism, you know, and same with, if, oh, well, you're white. Well, we're going to take this equally qualified Hispanic over you because you're white. That's, that's racism. And, and, it's, and it's legitimized by the laws and the guidelines of the universities and various forms of government. And so it's, that is a form of systemic racism. Um, but to say because there's an equal outcome and that makes it systemically racist, I don't think is an accurate representation. Uh, I feel. I think that's the difference between um, those two points is when I first heard the term systemic racism, I was like, oh, they're talking about laws that have been written in that favor somebody depending on race. Right. And someone's like, no, that's not it at all. It's about having unequal outcomes or whatever, having more black people in prison than right. they make up of the population. Right. I'm like, okay, so we're not really talking about the system being racist, but what the system puts out is not equal or equitable right. or that, whatever. Yeah. That, so if that's really the problem that we're looking to solve, then we have to decide, and I would. this is the question that I would arise to, is do we want to see equal numbers or and, and specifically say this is how we want to treat race, gender, everything else, and lay out the parameters so that there's only a certain amount of slots made for this person or this person or this person or laws written specifically to equal everything out? Or do we want to get rid of the race element or the gender element or the identity element completely? So that we're making all of our decisions based on some other metric. Right. Well, like which one of those would be more effective as a society to implement? That would be the question that I would come right. to. Right. And I think I, I think we could do an entire show on this because it has to do with, yeah, I would say, an effective way of approaching it would be like a meritocracy. Right. Like you can't explain that a little bit. Uh, it's basically you you move through society and you get jobs based on your talent and your, you know, your, your fitness for the job at hand. Um, I mean, if you look at like uh, uh, Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court, like he's really against the idea of, um, of uh, affirmative action because he earned his role on the Supreme Court and he excelled in school 
And it wasn't because he was given a, a handout because of his race. And so, but people presume and assume that he got onto the Supreme Court and was successful because <laughs> of affirmative action. So what he he despises the idea of it because he knows he was the top of his class. He knows that he excelled in all these things because of the efforts that he put into it to, because of the work. So that that's actually an example of a meritocracy. Same with like having a, a, a Barack Obama as president. Like that's meritocracy. He wasn't get, he wasn't made president because he was black. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He didn't he didn't excel in his professions and given a hand up, so to speak, because of his race. He earned it. Now, that's not to exclude that he did get some votes for being black. Oh, yeah, I'm but sure. But is did. that the reason he won? Yeah, yeah. And, and, but, I mean, how he got there. You know what I mean? He, he got right. there. Right. He, he achieved it. He was got, in the running far before that. Exactly. Yeah, he got himself there. Um, so, uh, yeah, and again, like I said, this is actually a, a, a complex subject I feel that we should do an entire show on and just hierarchy of meritocracy, right? Um, because what what can happen in that structure, the the foreseeable problems is like, well, now you're gonna have you're gonna have deep divisions along, let's say, IQ, right? Like people with higher IQs are going to excel in a meritocracy, right? And so right. so now it's like or physical fitness. Exactly. And, yeah. Exactly. So it's like you're creating again, you're gonna have unequal outcomes. You know, hmm. and and then that system tends to perpetuate itself because people with higher IQs are going to marry people with higher IQs and they're going to have children with higher IQs. And 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 because they're making more money in this meritocratic structure, then they're going to be able to educate their children better. And you know what I mean? So it's like it's almost a system that were, would perpetuate itself in a negative way in that you would still have disparity. You would still have unequalness. So it's, it's not. Yeah, the there would still be people that kind of fall through the cracks, right? That aren't necessarily fit, that aren't necessarily intelligent, right. that aren't necessarily um, really fit for many of the high-paying jobs. Right. And um, what I'm seeing now is that the systems that we have in place are kind of meant to perpetuate the status quo, right? To protect from, you know, all kinds of things that may change that or challenge that, right? I'm like, what is it that we want to perpetuate? Right. I mean, <laughs> has that question ever been like deeply dove into? Well, and and I mean, aside from an, a complete paradigm shift where we our society isn't driven by the economic factor. Okay, so we have market systems that are really such a critical element to all of these conversations we're having. So even when we talk about the disparity uh, outcomes in prison population. We know that a large percentage, a vast majority of people in prison are probably in that low economic, right? And those who- And there's all kinds of reasons for Right, and regardless of race, because I assume as you move up in economic class, because there there are Asians, there are Hispanics, there are blacks, there are whites, all up in the higher economic classes. And I would, I'd be willing to bet that they, a lot less of them go to prison than all of those races in the lower economic. 
Um, so like I said, it'd be like looking at a paradigm shift of, okay, well, how do we have a market system or do we, you know, completely overhaul the entire system so that it's not market based? Um, that's a whole other conversation in of itself. And what would that look like? And how would we go about that? So we do have to take into consideration that these are elements and, but the, the reason I bring up the meritocracy is because in a meritocracy, you can be poor. And if you excel at whatever it is you want to do, you can achieve in the higher roles. Now, you have to take into consideration that in our current society, there are like ridiculous levels of nepotism, you know, where uh, families who have become wealthy or who have been wealthy for generations they have a system of nepotism where they're not necessarily going to take the, the most fit or intelligent or skilled or talented people and put them into positions because they're going to take from the pool of, well, their friends, kids and their kids. And you know what I mean? So that you, you have to really address that system of nepotism that's there for, to, to really have a true meritocracy where anyone at any level can achieve at any strata. But again, you still have strata. You know, so. But you, you really, you see the nepotism intensely the higher you go. Right. Like I know, like I'm thinking how many kids that went to public school are taught about money management, taxes, investments, um, how to make yourself relevant in a job or a position, right. how to climb the ladder, how to go for a CEO, like how to get in and know people and how much that human connection matters versus people in private school. Right. And people in the upper levels of private school where they're really like this elite schooling. How many of them are coming out understanding the monetary system? Right. And all of that stuff. Like those are things that, are incredibly important for generating wealth and creating a legacy and like passing things on to to children that when you're up in like the the Rockefeller level of the game like do they even go to school oh. <laughs> that's the question right, right. so it's it's interesting nepotism is i had to google it to see exactly what you were talking about it says the practice among those with power or influence of favoring relatives or friends especially by giving them jobs right and i would add and information right and a way of life and practices that have gotten them as successful as they are to where they're at which i think speaks to one of the most essential elements we need to address in order to get rid of these disparities right so it, what you're you're speaking <laughs> well, one to one last point what happens when people in the lower class are doing the same thing? That's it. That's the They're culture. giving them a job. Right. Yeah. <laughs> They're giving the job. My buddy owns a lumber shop. He'll give you $12 right. an hour. Right. I got you this job or I'll give you this education. I'm teaching you how I managed my money right. and I ended up poor and no retirement and stuff. Like all of that is always at play on the entire scale, the entire spectrum. Right. Yes. And so – like I said, this speaks to one of the central issues, which is the culture, right? Because what you described is, yes, those people who already for generations have been at these higher strata or these higher classes of our society, 
they have a culture. And like you said, in that culture, there's a completely different system of education, right? There's a completely different way of, of, of interacting with your peers and your parents and your family and the friends of your family. Like they're all being uh, uh, nurtured in a way that is going to impart in them these characteristics, which would often, not always, but often translate into more success. Now, self-sustaining, right, right, and they're not necessarily the most fit because even in that culture, you can have people in the in the extreme lower class who are extremely intelligent and extremely hardworking and could could excel if given the opportunity, right? And so that and that's you know in this world, in our, or I should say in our society, you know, and it's taken us a long time to get here, but we're at the point where the the question of equal opportunity has pretty much been put to rest in that anyone can go anywhere. It's okay. What are the obstacles that prevent anyone from going anywhere? And most likely it's always going to be the economic one, you know, but here's the thing. It's more right now with a lot of the policies and stuff that are in place, it's going to probably disproportionately affect poor white people because they have no in to a university. They don't see, that's the thing. Like in the, let's say in the universities, right? Where they're, they may, they want to have equal opportunities. So they want, you know, more minorities and things like that in there. But is it really, is, is that really the right metric or the only metric to be looking at? Like, yes, we've now created opportunity for, you know, Hispanics and blacks and, and every, and everything else to be, to get into there, right? Cause there's all these scholarships and all these grants available for minorities and those considered oppressed. Right. But if you come from, if you're white and poor, there are actually very few available to you. And the fact that the schools are like, well, we already got, we already got enough white people. <laughs> so even if you are excelling, and you you work hard and you're intelligent, but you're poor and white, you might have a much more difficult time getting that equal access. Um, but again, I'd say that not taking into consideration that economic element could be very damaging because it is sort of a, uh, it can be an obstacle to that equal opportunity, right? Right. Like if you don't have the money for a car, do you really have equal opportunity? Because can you get outside of the city you live in? And if you can't get outside of the city you live in, how are you supposed to get a job in, in these higher level places that they may be hiring based on a meritocracy and they may even be opening it up to, you know, to uh, uh, favor minority applicants. But if you can't get there, do you really have equal opportunity? Dude, uh, interestingly enough, my girlfriend and I were just having a conversation about this yesterday or the day before. She was telling me about some study that she she had just read through that, or it was part of her, uh, like she was taking some data 
class. Sorry, there's something in my eye here. <laughs> she was taking some kind of uh, data class where they do like how to how to create metrics to test if your business is being effective and how to implement those metrics and stuff. And they said there's this really important study that found when I wish I knew the name of it now. I didn't think I'd be talking about it. <laughs> um, but basically, the whole study was around children. They were given like a piece of candy. And they said, if you bring this piece of candy back tomorrow and you haven't eaten it, I will give you two more pieces to eat. And if you don't bring it back and you just eat it now, then you'll get no more tomorrow. Right. So they were testing whether or not the, the child had the capacity and willpower to wait for gratification. Right. For yeah, delayed gratification. And they found yeah, that's delayed that, gratification. That's what yeah, it was. that's the trait and, that that having that trait that again comes from your culture, whether it's your family culture or your racial culture, your ethnic culture, or your community culture. That delayed gratification is actually a a, a signal for success you know those there's a huge indicator yeah it's a huge indicator so they were saying that it was uh extremely correlative and I, I couldn't tell you the percentages but basically it was a huge indicator of whether or not you would be successful in a career whether you were a business owner or employee or something because of this trait this ability to delay gratification right but they did another study, like they put it out there and everyone started, you know, independently validating it as kind of what happens when you put studies out. And what got proven after the fact was that the ability to delay gratification was directly correlative with how much money your family made. Right. <laughs> so really what they were defining was a symptom of like monetary inequity. Right. And saying you have less money, you're less likely to be able to delay gratification, and then that leads to less likely to be successful in, in the workplace. Right. It was fascinating to see that one metric is, because nothing is truly separate, is a condition or, or a uh, result of something else, a deeper issue. Right. And that, and that I think, Super cool. and I think that that's, again, where, where we begin when we start to, so like we said at the beginning, these theories, these philosophies are actually doing the opposite of what they're intended to do, creating divisiveness. They're creating anger and hatred and, and separation and division and victimness. And, and none of those serve anyone in propping themselves up. Okay. Um, what you'll see is more of the same, and actually, an what we're seeing is an intensification of. But let's let's talk about how that works, because that how what works like like you and I have had the conversation of like say when when Bush got elected a second term, everybody was no Bush, no Bush, no Bush. We got Bush. Yeah. When Trump got elected for his first term, everybody was like, no Trump, no Trump, no Trump. We got Trump elected. Right. Which, <laughs> and now which we're is, even seeing it. Everybody's like, no Trump, I'm going here. Or they're like, ah, no Biden, I'm going here. Right. There's no voting for something. Right. And I can see in systems and situations when people are like, this is what I don't want. And this is actually the fundamental reason why I don't go anti anything. Right. Because I find that the more I, I resist something and put my energy into it and try to defeat it, all I'm doing is feeding it. Right. Yeah. In some way. Yeah. 
And that's and perpetuate. And that's what these these philosophies are doing because they're putting all the focus and attention into it, into the anti, into the against part of it, and they're perpetuating all these things, right? So you just spoke to the delayed gratification is an element of culture. And so really, if we're looking at, okay, we really want within our society, inclusivity, equality, justice, and fairness, right? We really want these things. Well, then we have to look at, okay, what, what's at the root, right? So you're speaking right now about a direct correlation between income levels and delayed gratification. And being able to delay gratification is an indicator of success, right? So that's cultural. So really it comes back to culture. And so if we really want equality and we really want uh, inclusivity, then we're going to look at the obstacles, you know, the, the real obstacles to having that, which a lot is going to be in the culture of any community, right? So if we go back to the race issue of the critical race theory, and you look at the Asian culture, right? And proportionate to their, to their uh, representation in the population, they do great in income, in education, like they excel in general. Right, as, as when you take per capita on numbers, right, based on those metrics, is it Asian privilege that has them there? What, where is this Asian privilege? Because right now they're being discriminated against in in the educational systems, where they're being refused college <laughs> access because they're like they're like ah, we already got too many Asians, you know. So there's actually a discrimination against them. But what is it that has them? being so successful per capita. And now we look at the culture, right? And so what you'll find is, is that principle that of delayed gratification, of work ethic, of um, uh, just all the indicators that would have someone excel and, and, and get into a university or to land a high paying job they embody more of those indicators as, as, as principles than, let's say, people who aren't as representative in those, in those school systems or in, in uh, high-paying jobs and things like that. So it's, again, it's looking at culture. And, and, and right now we're actually seeing a drop in, uh, in male representation in the workforce and in, and in education um, you're seeing a drop in success. Like women are actually excelling in universities. They're representing higher than their proportion in the population. And when you compare them within comparable jobs to their male counterparts, they're making more. Um, so it's... I almost feel like that's probably been on the rise. It, it has, yeah. Decades. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's going up. <laughs> it's not coming down, it's going up. Um, and so it's like, okay, well, what is it about our culture that is negatively impacting men and pushing up women? We definitely want to push up women. We want them to be successful. We want them to feel fulfillment. We want all the, all the things that they want, we want to make sure that they can achieve, right? But what has this drop 
Interesting. In the in the in the side of men, in both employment and in education and in success in education, that there's this drop so occurring. So there's something. It's in almost the like there's a trade-off that's happening instead of just an elevation that's happening. Right. Well, it could be. It could be that it's stagnant. That that. No, because it's actually the percentage of like let's say uh, male success in higher education is actually going down. Um, so that is, again, this is something that we need to look at the culture with regards to men, you know? Uh, so again, it's, it's, there are so many variables at play here to limit it to race or gender or anything else. We have to be able to really look at a, a broad spectrum of variables to really take into account what's, what's really affecting these outcomes, right? We want, we want to create yeah. less disparity in the outcomes. Well, let's look at these elements of our culture that, are, that have these disparity of outcomes just coming out. And, and not in a simplistic way of like narrowing it down to one variable and saying, oh, it's sexism. Oh, it's racism, right? Oh, there's a disparity of, of racial representation. It's racism. Well, it, it might not be. Right. <laughs> there, there, there may well, be even some if other it is, factors at play there. <laughs> even if it is, what do we do about right. it? And what are the outcomes that we want to make? Right. We taking that into account. It's like what whatever we decide to label things, I I feel like it's it's where the majority of the argument lies. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, that's the like not even necessary mm -hmm. to make progress. Right. Because Without labeling it as racism or sexism or any other ism or issue, we still have the ability to dream up the type of word we do want to see. And I, I feel like that's been the lack of imagination that's been happening in, in this country, at least recently, since I've really been like looking into um, public issues like this. Because if we really look at what what people are wanting... Mm -hmm. They're wanting to see, like, no restriction on who you can marry. You want to see, like, no uh, suppression of somebody based off of education or money or language or gender or, or race or whatever. We're looking for fairness. We're looking for everybody to get along. We're looking for everyone to have the same opportunities and happiness and all this stuff. Like, really, people want the same thing. Right. And... I've not yet heard somebody come up with like, this is what it looks like. <laughs> well, this is where we want to go, this direction. It's like, oh, everybody, look, this is what's broken. We need to break it down. We need to tear it down, and we need to like get rid of it. Right. Break it down and throw it yeah. away. And I'm like, well, then what's left? Yeah. What do we do when everything's broken down and torn and tossed away? Right. And that's actually, that is part of these philosophies that you have disparate outcome. Therefore, the system is racist. Therefore, the only thing you can do is tear down the system. Like, the, yeah, for what? Right. The, and then yeah, what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's no focus on what, what, is, what are the solutions. Um, and I'm sure it's out there. I'm sure some people are throwing, but it's not part of the main conversation. No, and, and it's because this is, I mean, the reason we're having this conversation about these particular ideologies is that there's such a high level of polarization, right? That you have huge percentage of the population possessed by these ideologies. And so like 
you have people who are possessed by the postmodernist critical theories and things like that. And you have people who are possessed by the reactionary uh, ideologies to these. Like you see right now the possession of nationalism. Right? You see this high degree of nationalism. Why? Why is there so much nationalism? Well, it's a natural reaction to division. People are like wanting to pull together. And so there's all this, this, this uh, pull towards nationalism, which is, again, trying to find some kind of solidarity, right? So it's, it's, it's in reaction to a divisive ideology. So you have, the, and, and, it's, and they're polarizing, and they're, and they're looking at each other as enemies, right? So it's, it, you're, you're, you're definitely creating a problem more, that, more so than mitigating any problems because it's polarizing more and more and more and more and more and it's, they've become opposing forces as opposed to... And it's fans. actually extremely uncomfortable to maintain the middle. Right. Like, as, as those things start, to, as anything starts to polarize and get further and further apart, there is this, like, arc, this potential, this energy that, get, that happens between the two poles. Mm-hmm. And it's magnetic. You can't maintain neutrality in mix of two highly charged poles. Right. It just doesn't happen. Like ask any kid when their parents are arguing. They just kind of... <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And, it's, and so I, I'd say that that's... I'd say the, one of the most significant questions we can address today is how do we build the bridge? How do we... How do we depolarize, right? How do we, because it's not like, okay, so we have these, these polarizing elements, right? these extraordinarily toxic polarizing philosophies that are tearing people apart, right? And putting people at odds with each other and making people hate each other. Okay, how can we approach this? Because I don't think that, Anyone in either end of the spectrum is like, yes, we're for exclusivity and we're for injustice and inequality and, and unfairness. <laughs> and fuck yeah. everybody that's different. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't think that's really where anyone's at with it, but that's... Well, you said it. There's like a dozen of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I mean, there, I, I don't know. I just haven't seen anything like that in so long you know, as far as like explicitly racist people and things like that. Like, yeah, I'm sure they're out there, but they're a very small, minute part of the population. In reality- and They're in hiding. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, they're in hiding. Um, but I, I do believe that these two polarizing groups, a majority, because yes, you're going to have those elements, those intolerant elements on both sides. However- I believe that these, these polarized elements really want the same things. They all want equality. They all want uh, justice. They all want inclusivity. You know, they all want fairness. You know, no, none of them are And they all it. think they're yeah. right. Like, none of them want racism. You know, none of them want sexism. There's not, there are no sexism advocates or racism advocates. Like you said, they make up uh, 0.00001 of the population and they're not a part of the conversation. 
You're not, see, you know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? You're not seeing them anywhere. Their voice isn't out there. Where are they at? You know, so they're not really a part of this conversation. This is a conversation that's happening in the majority of the population. And it's highly polarizing. Uh, it's highly confrontational. It's highly divisive. And it's creating more problems than it's solving. So building a bridge. And it's so popular. I know. It's crazy. It's crazy. Like, I feel like people can major in this stuff at this point. <laughs> they do, by the way. And they're professions that have been built off of this. Yes. I'm like, if you can spend your entire life in this argument and make money there <laughs> and build a family and a home there, like, that's... That's big. Yeah, and it, and it is happening. There's no exit from Yeah, and just whether you're aware of it or not, that is happening. <laughs> like that is what you just described is what's happening. You know, there are people yeah. making a living off of this, you know, who are basically, you know. Uh, Fighting the good fight. <laughs> from their, maybe from their perspective, it is. But, sure. it's, yeah. but it's clear from the results that it's highly divisive. So... I think one of the things we have to look at in order to, to get to a place where we can address these things from a way that we can dissolve this polarization, bring people together and create real solutions um, is the power, that power element that is born in postmodernism and made its way into critical theories and is such a big part of these conversations from identity politics to critical race theory to um, to nationalism like it's it, they're they're all being polarized by this power struggle right and it's about having power over so it's one group of people defining themselves as being oppressed and therefore without power and now the tables, the, their, their theory, their philosophy, their, their impetus is we must shift the power dynamic and we must now have power over them. You see? And I think... There's no middle ground? Yeah, no. <laughs> that's, and that's and that same... And you see it in all the critical theories. It's like, well, you know, transgender and gays must have power over cisgender. And... Uh, uh, minor, racial minorities must have power over the racial majority. And now, is that the the theory, the philosophies, yeah, or you're seeing that in practice? Yeah, too? that well, we're seeing that we're seeing that that's part of the conversation. That's why you see things playing out and people acting the way they do. Like you've, uh, I, what, I don't know if you've seen people's intolerance for free speech, like. Literally, I've seen some yeah. of that. Yeah. So you have people just showing up to shout down people who are just speaking their opinion, right? And and they're using monikers like you know it's hate speech and it's intolerance and it's, and really again the accusers are actually committing that which they're pointing the finger at, right? But like they're the ones who are oppressing by not letting someone speak. They're the ones who are who are being fascist, you know. Um, in their approach to this, and it's but for them it's justified in because it's a struggle for power. It's about getting power over it, so it's justified, you know. Um, so in the war or in the fight for power, right. 
there is no equality or equity of power. Someone always has an upper hand because what we're all stuck on a hierarchy. Yeah. 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 And it's Mm. just about, it's just about, but, and here's the problem and all hierarchies are defined as power structures as opposed to like, again, look at the NBA, right? We could say, well, it is, uh, People five, five foot six and under are hugely underrepresented in the NBA, and there should be more people who are less than five foot six inches tall in the NBA. Muggsy Books. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but you, in, that argument sounds ridiculous because you're like, no, because they're not, unless, I mean, maybe if they're a great basketball player, then their height doesn't matter. See, because the NBA is a meritocracy based on your talent, based on your skill. You know, it's not really based on race or height or any of those things. Now, there is, a, there is the unequal outcome that typically these guys are, you know, like six foot two, six foot four and over. You know, that's a vast majority of these yeah. guys playing the game are in that upper end. Now, is, does that mean that it's discriminatory against short people? No, it's, it's a meritocracy. The it just so happens that most of the greatest basketball players are relatively tall. So it's, I, I don't feel that like, you know, tearing apart the NBA and forcing them to integrate, you know, shorter people is necessarily the answer. Um, well, tell me this. Why is that not part of the conversation? Why do we not care about like the inequities of the NBA or even the WNBA or even football, cricket, any sport. We're not going there and complaining about anything. No, because that's seen. But we're doing it in these systems. Because it's seen as like, well, because that system is dominated by racial minorities. So therefore, the power dynamic's okay over there. You see what I'm saying? Like, they're all right because they're not dominated or okay, are what overrepresented about, like, or underrepresented. The ge- the gender conversation because they made an entirely new league called not the NBA, but the women's NBA, the WNBA. Why aren't we arguing to get all teams 50, 50 men and women? Because of the meritocracy. Um, And, and again, this, but see, what's the difference in those conversations? That's what I'm trying to get. Yeah, you're right. There is, there isn't one (laughs) because it's, and and this is why you start to see this this theory is tenuous at best. It's 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 vapid. It it lacks substance. It's it it can very it sounds easily. good in certain light, well, it, especially. But it can't work for all well, situations. And the reason it sounds good is because you start to roll it up with words like well, inclusivity and equality, and you know, but it's actually it's not creating any of that. <laughs> you know, it's. Like it kind of feels racist. like a temporary tool. It almost feels like we do this for long enough and we kind of balance the scales and then we can go back to like <laughs> ditching, trying to level the right. scales. And, and that may be an element of it. And I wouldn't say that necessarily that's a negative element. Like, so for instance, it's a relatively recent phenomenon for men, women, and people of all races to have equal opportunity. But for so long, there wasn't. And so what you have are systems that are dominated by people who weren't 
oppressed by older systemic uh, uh, discriminatory systems, right? So you can say, okay, we've now equaled the playing field. We want to get representation up, okay? But that's not really the approach here. You know, it's, it's about having power over because the fact is if that was the only goal, then you wouldn't be demeaning and diminishing people of, of certain races or certain uh, uh, sexualities or anything else. It would be like, okay, we all have equal opportunity. We all, we're going to base this on, you know, talent, skill, whatever else. Um, but there's an underrepresentation. So we're going to, for a temporary amount of time, start to push people who were historically oppressed into these positions. Now, I can see that could be an effective way of like balancing the scales, so to speak. Um, but are you, are you trying to force the issue? Like, again, remember we were talking about women being underrepresented in prison. You know, what if you're trying to equalize something where the a people of a certain population, because in the conversation of intersectionality, you could divide people into infinite number of groups. I mean, literally. And not infinite, because we'll end up the individual. Right. So, well, uh, if we're <laughs> going to limit, if we're going to limit the conversation to Earth, you could divide it into seven billion, right, groups. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and, and there's literally like like a, almost like a point system in place of, of your intersectional uh, 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 positioning, your, your, your specialness, so to speak, in that the more intersectional categories you meet, the more oppressed you are, and therefore the more uh, a hand up you should be given, the, the more favor you should be given, right? Um, so if you hit, you know, six of the check boxes, well then, yeah, you regardless of your talent and your intelligence and anything mm. else, you are favored over all others for this job position or whatever else. But I don't really see that. Like when, why? When, so like, when, why, what? If say, say like black man, black woman, black woman has you know, one intersection because she is woman. One, no, she's two. And she's minority black. and black. Got two. At so least. those two don't have one intersection. What do you mean one intersection? Like, I'm oppressed for being a woman. I'm oppressed for being black. Those intersect. I have one intersection. Yeah. Shit. Okay. That's intersectionality. Or is that I'm... two intersections? <laughs> okay. So if you're talking about the point scale now. Okay. So yes, that's two. It's minority and female. Okay. So that would be two. Okay. Now let's say she's a minority. She's female. And she's transgender. Okay. And, and she's, she's got a disability. Okay. Now we're getting pretty high up on the grading scale. And so you give you get more favor based what on is that what does that what does that what does that give you? It gives you that equal distribution, that equal outcome you're trying to achieve. But I'm saying that the equal out that approach to equal outcome isn't necessarily the best way to approach equal outcome. You know, because but, so the thing is like no one's implementing this in a business. No one's implementing this in yeah, they what they're are. trying to do in schools and stuff. Yeah, they are doing this. In they're business. not. They're saying, okay, well, because you've got one intersection or two intersections or five intersections, you're on the waiting list, and we start off with the most intersections yeah. at the top and work our way down. Yeah. They do that? Yeah, they're doing that. 
So you're so by having more intersections, you literally have a better chance to at money and at education and at career and at yeah. That, wow, yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. I was I was always thinking, what's the argument about? What is it to achieve? Right. Like if somebody's building a system that we all are going to use at some point in the future, and everyone's already arguing about like who's going to be the best at the system. <laughs> like then it, I'm like, okay, it makes sense why everyone's wanting to claim to be the most suppressed. Right. I never knew there were actually systems in place right now that that benefit you for being oppressed. Yeah. Yeah. That's that, And again, that's, that's the philosophical basis of these philosophies. What are they? What, what are what? What are the, what are the, what are, what are, what's in place? These are, people are using this for their hiring practices in big companies. Like, like they even have like advancement, right? Like if, if you're in a company and there's room for advancement, right? To get to higher positions within the company, they have policies in a lot of these big companies where, oh, well, you're a straight white male. You're at the end of the list. You will be the last to advance. Regardless. So they're literally advancing solely based off of intersection. Yeah, intersectionality. Yep. Yeah, not. God, that's like the game that everyone's like hush hush. That like I, I don't even know if there's a word for it, but I feel like everyone's like, oh, they were a diversity hire. Like, shh, don't say that. Don't say that. Like now, like, oh yeah, of course, diversity hire. Like, we got to get more women up. We got to get more black people up. We got to get more gays up. Like. Is so it the, the, it's flipped and now that's something to be proud of. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah, and and again, when you look at it on its face, it is sexist, it is racist, it is all those things. And again, I I get the intention. Like I, you want to even out the scales, and that's not a bad thing. But I think that there may be a more effective way of approaching this that doesn't create as much division within within the population because this is creating an extraordinary yeah. amount of division um how many guys that wanted that position that worked for that position and not even guys men and women and everybody else just to have somebody else get it at no effort of their own right yeah at no real choice of their own like the argument is that you know I didn't choose to be black. I didn't choose to be gay. I didn't choose to be a woman. I didn't choose to be trans. I didn't choose any of this. Therefore, you can't discriminate me on it. Therefore, I get a promotion. <laughs> yeah. And you could be actually less qualified for the promotion than the white cisgendered male. Yeah. You may be actually worse at the job. Yeah. Which sounds like a terrible business model, <laughs> unless, like you, unless you're getting points or like handouts for diversity or something, which is kind of what they did before. Like, oh, we won't give you any extra perks unless you've got a certain level right. of diversity. Right. Like some funders would stay away from a business that was all white, straight. Right. <laughs> They'd be like, eh, I don't really want to invest in that. I'll go invest over here. But yeah, like, what's the incentive? I don't know. I'm I'm learning a lot from this. I haven't really thought any of these things through this. Way. Right. 
Yeah. And, and obviously I got a lot of headway. I got a lot of work to do still. Right. But. Right. So, and, and again, back to that, the, what I feel is one of the toxic elements is the power, power over, right? So the, the approach of these philosophies to have for one group to have power over another group, I feel is at its, at the core is the most toxic element of these philosophies. And why is that? Because it is in, if you're, if you're seeking to have power over another, it, all you're going to do is perpetuate inequality and, mm. and racism and, and uh, injustice. You know, these, these are things that will be perpetuated by one group having power over another. And I think the conversation needs to be like individuals having power with their circumstances and conditions and things like that so that it's not about having control over another group, right? Um, because if, if that's the focus, if the focus is we must disempower these people, disempowerment isn't good on, it, on any scale, you know? You don't, right. you don't have to disempower people to empower others. It's not an either or conversation, you know, and that's, we got to get out of that mindset of the either or one group power over another group. And that, and that can, we can maybe then come to a place where we can develop a philosophy or a way of approaching this within school and business and things that do nurture equal outcome. It can't guarantee it because you, uh, you always have individual choice. And so you can't expect there to be equal outcome in anything. Like it may be it, well, it actually is statistically speaking that like, let's say with the gender conversation, women are going to be drawn towards certain jobs and men by their nature are going to be drawn to other jobs. So you can't say, well, we must have equal number of mathematicians. You know, there must be equal women and equal men in the mathematics field or in the field of physics or whatever else. Um, you could have incentives to get, the, you know, the women in there, but there shouldn't be elements of discrimination in that. You know, and... Right, and, if, and there, there's aspects that people talk about where the reason why there's more men in a field versus women or more women versus men is because culturally programming or expecting like, you know, painting a girl's room pink as soon as she's born versus blue. Right. Like there are very like, what are they, they called? Gender roles or something like that, that are laid out that almost steer people in that direction. But I would argue that even if those were completely eliminated, even if you put everybody into like, pink and blue rooms <laughs> and put them all down the same track that they would still kind of sort themselves out in an uneven way. It's like the nature of, of like binary reality or duality that we live in where it's never, ever in the right. center. Everything is constantly trying to distill to center, right. trying to balance itself out. That's like why electricity works. Right. Well, and, and you have to look at like, Again, there's two, there are so many variables at work here. So you, let's say just the gender, right? If, if all you look at is the variable of gender and you don't take into consideration that there are various personality types that gravitate towards certain types of jobs and 
whose personality types are uh, benefit them in different aspects of life and that may and personality types that may hinder you in certain aspects of life so if you're not or even in within the, that specific like we talked about in, in leadership like the four was it analyzer controller whatever you can have four women get together and they'll sort themselves out like that right four men together sort themselves right out. and in that's and and same with psychology where you have the big five personality traits that's what it yeah. is and then you 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 will divide yourself up um, or you you already have a tendency and strengths in certain personality elements, right? Um, and so that's gonna and again, not by a large margin, but biologically speaking, men and women do differ on these scales in general. I'm not saying all women are a certain way. I'm not saying all men are a certain way, but there is distinguishable differences in, in, in measurable differences on average and in general between men and women. And so to yeah. boil it all down to gender, you know, and say, no, we must have equal outcome here when it's like, what if let's say nursing, right. Or, or really in, uh, in healthcare in general, women are more drawn to take care of people. So they're going to dominate in the fields of psychology. They're going to dominate in the fields of medicine. Is it what we, are we going to force men to do those jobs? Are we going to force women out of those jobs to get the equal numbers that we want? Like it, it's. And does that really help right. us? So again, it comes back to that, uh, that part of the conversation where it's like, really like for one, like, is this, is this a significant set of outcomes that we need to address? Like for instance, job choice, you know, like it's, if it's clear that the opportunity is there for man, woman, black, white, doesn't matter. You are able to, you have opportunity and access to all jobs, right? For all whatevers. If that, if there is the equal opportunity, you can't force people into positions and to take on roles that they're not interested in, you know? So to say that, okay, now we're going to mandate equal outcome and all across the board and all these, that's ridiculous. Um, and then there is one aspect though, that I, I find interesting. Like uh, I think it was actually my girlfriend again, who brought this up to me, but uh, in working with engineers, someone told her one day that, but like, have you ever thought why there's always a line at the women's restroom and not at the men's restroom? It's like, it's an engineering problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, if there was like more women in the room of designing bathrooms, which they have, there are bathrooms that there's no lines at the men's or the women's. And because engineering wise, that's an easy problem to fix, an easy problem to straighten out. But if all you have is a bunch of men that question may never come up. Right. Right. <laughs> like, Oh, oversight. Oops. We'll fix it next right. time. And, and, that, and that, there like, is... we may be able to use and increase the diversity to target specific problems. Right. And I think that could be really effective, but to make it mandatory for everybody and to make the shoe fit, if it doesn't may not create the outcomes that we're looking right. to create. But that's again, diversity of opinion is important, but to presume and assume that diverse opinions exist because of your race or your sex, that's racist and that's sexist. 
You see what I'm saying? <laughs> like, like, yeah, 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 like totally. oh, oh, well, we, we need, you know, we need black people because of their different opinions. So what you're saying is what black people think differently than white people. That's racist. <laughs> right. Well, I just even caught myself. I was like, let's get a woman in here to talk about how we set up right, bathrooms. That's and stuff. She may not know how to do it. <laughs> she may have worse ideas and we end up with lines of both <laughs> bathrooms. Like she may be able to fix it and make men's bathrooms even better. We right. don't know. But just to assume because she's a woman, she's going to come in and fix a problem. That, that's not going to work. I mean, it may by chance work, but it's not going to mathematically work out that that's the case right. every time. Right. But again, I will reassert that diversity of opinion is important, right? And diversity of worldviews and different ways of looking at things. And so you will have, by the nature of different cultures, you will have different opinions and worldviews, right? So like the culture of your neighborhood, the culture of your family, the culture of your country, all these things affect the way you see the world and the narratives that you live your life by. So there, you can actually say that, yes, taking someone from a low-income neighborhood and someone from a middle-class neighborhood and putting them together, there will be a diversity of opinions just because their worldviews will differ based on the various cultures that they have strung together their narratives from, right? Just by being around right. each other. I mean, just taking two people from two separate families, forget about economic disparity, forget about racial differences or ethnic differences or anything else. Your family has a culture and you pick up things and incorporate and embody things from your family that you aren't necessarily going to get in another family, right? That, so there, there, mm-hmm. there are varying degrees and, and various uh, circumstances and conditions that affect people's view, their worldview, the narratives they live their lives by. And so having diversity of opinion will d- definitely enriches things, right? So I, I, I do see a strength in that. But again, to force it, if people aren't interested in it, you, I, I definitely believe in equal opportunity. But to force an equal outcome isn't, isn't necessarily achievable. Because it may be that certain people, certain cultures aren't interested in certain things, you know, and yes, you can nurture that interest, you know, like, you know, putting together a program that really focuses, let's say, STEM into the, the, uh, the, into high schools for girls and for, for, uh, for female, you know, interest, because it seems that when you get to that, into the workplace, STEM-based uh, uh, professions and STEM-based education that it seems to be dominated by males. Um, but you can't force them. <laughs> if they're not interested, you can't force them in there. Like, well, we need you there because, it, it, you know, we need these numbers to be equal. You know, we, we have, you know, 58% men and we need 50%. You know, we need to bring that down to 50. And we can't just get rid of people. We need, so we need to we're going to force women into this position to equal out this outcome, right? So it's now if if you had a, a hundred people and they all wanted into this job, mm-hmm. but you only had say twenty slots, right? Would it be effective to put ten men, ten women? Would it be effective to do merit meritocracy and just say whoever gets it gets right. it? 
whoever uh, outperforms the other person. Or let's, you know, talking about diversity, what, what comes out of the enrichment? In, right. Is there a balance between those dynamics that best serves business or the community or the situation or the people that are involved? Right. I'd say it's a slippery slope <laughs> because, again, that's like saying, okay, well, we've got, we've got 10 people in a room. Uh, five of them are six foot four and taller. And five of them are five foot six and under. And we need to build a basketball team. And we need six people. Do we take equal? Three tall guys, three short guys? I'll tell you right now, I would not. <laughs> I would take the fastest, exactly. the best shot, exactly. <laughs> the best dribblers. Exactly. And I wouldn't even take all the best dribblers. I would take one or two really good dribblers. And I would say, give me a couple of tall guys, but only if they can rebound. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, and I would slowly start to build a team for to have a good, solid player in each position. Right. Because that the whole point is to right. win. Now, if I was talking about this team is just to, you know, create, get creative and create new plays and stuff like that, then maybe I want you know, good players from all over the world to see how they play basketball over here, over there, and bring it together and have that diversity, that mixture to produce something creatively. Right. But, you're say, but you're something still new. looking for the best result. Right. I'm like, what's the purpose of bringing these people together or hiring people or whatever? That's why I'm like, you really can't have a one blanket fits all. If you have equal people everywhere all the time, there will be certain things falling short and certain things excelling because the intent changes with every business, every relationship, <laughs> every like uh, uh, like venture or an adventure or whatever that, that happens. There is going to be different conditions and there's going to be a different intent and different values set on the goals. Right. Yeah. That's huge. You can't ignore that stuff. No, <laughs> you can't. Not if you're looking to create effective solutions, right? The, the, the solutions are, or let, like, let's say in business, right? If you just start filling your business with people and are completely disregarding the skill and talent and effectiveness of the individuals, you're, you're playing for mediocrity. Um, now, again, not that mediocrity is bad, but it's not profitable in business. Right? It's not as profitable as, as it could be. Um, so it's, there, there's definitely, and, and these are, we, again, it's, it comes back to the, the, the um, the question of uh... well, real quick to to add to that, I I feel like the um the intent I'm realizing now behind most of the systems that people take issue with, mm -hmm. the intent is never like oh we gotta have all white straight men like that's no. never the intent no. and the outcome doesn't really matter right. because that's not the intent. However, 
the in, the intent behind the prison system is money. <laughs> the intent behind court systems to pay off a charge and to pay your debts, it's monetary. The the intent behind you know our our, our healthcare systems monetarily, like everything, as far as a business, is driven by money. About profits, about bottom line. And I'm like, that works incredibly well sometimes. Right. But it's ruining healthcare systems <laughs> because you'll have some people not even able to get the treatment that they really need because the, what do they call it? The, uh, um, the generic brand has been made illegal <laughs> and they have to get it from this one source, which is like, you know, what's the one? like hepatitis cure that they came out with that was like a dollar per pill and you only needed like six of them. And then they upped it to a thousand dollars a pill when they imported it to the U.S. I mean, that kind of stuff exists because that industry is driven by profits. Right. Yeah. I'm like, what happens if we change the intent that, behind the system? And that's what I talked about at the beginning with the paradigm shift. Cause it's like, okay. Yeah. Like we, it, it, you, you have to think up a system that, isn't a market-based system, you know, something like a, a resource management system where... Well, we can reward doctors for curing people instead of rewarding them for selling my, you know, my drugs. Right. Well, yeah, you're... Okay, we, we could talk about many of the <laughs> ills. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, they're... they're <sighs> I could say that it, it's apparent evident that there are many profit driven businesses that are doing more harm to our society than good. And I'm not saying all, but I'm saying there are, they do exist that the nature of that industry or the nature of the business is in, in the fact that it's profit driven does more harm than good. Um, but and it does not value human wellness. Right. And it, what, now what's, now what's oh. interesting is like, yes, that's a whole other conversation, but it really, it does really speak to a lot of the elements of this conversation. And it would be beneficial to address those elements in this conversation, but it's such a big conversation. <laughs> it's like, you right. know, because I, I, I don't see... Um, our current systems, uh, uh, the current market systems, I don't see them as effective um, at creating a society that thrives, right? So, and when I, when I say a society that thrives, I mean all people are, have all the food they need, have all the shelter and transportation they need that, like, our systems don't necessarily create that. And and again, an, an important aspect is also people's liberty, their freedom, right? Their individual freedom. So to, to, that's why I'm saying it's a new paradigm because it, to have that thriving and that freedom does not, it does not lend itself to our current system because of these powerful companies that can affect the markets in a way that is that is disproportionately uh, 
harming or uh, destructive towards certain elements of our society or the society itself. Like you said, like the medical one, that's a big conversation um, in the pharmaceutical industry and everything else. Like that's a huge conversation that we will have at some point, I'm sure. Um, but it, 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 it takes a reimagination of our social structure that I don't believe has been done yet. Like I, I definitely don't think socialism is the key because that, that personal freedom and liberty go right out the window with that. It sells the idea of a utopia, but it's at the point of a gun. <laughs> like, like you're, there is no liberty and freedom in that. It's complete control of every aspect of every person's life in order to make sure everyone gets what they need. And because it's such an ineffective system, nobody's barely getting anything they need. You know, you have the same things that you have with this system, which is, yes, you're going to have nepotism and you're going to have oligarchy and you're going to have classes and you're, you're still going to have all those things. So to, to have the conversation of how do we not have those things, that's, that's a conversation of a new paradigm. Now, if we talk about the paradigm that we currently have, how do we generate, you know, equality and inclusivity and, and fairness in our current paradigm in a mark in the market system we have um well i think step number one is to acknowledge what we do have right yeah we have a system that's propagating itself that's incentivized to propagate exactly what's going on yeah and i mean in reality we may say yeah the really the the clear answer here is a reimagination of the system. We need, we need well, a new paradigm. Not necessarily. But it may be. Like maybe it may just be. a... Uh, because you, how are maybe, you going to get over those economic uh, elements? Well, what do we incentivize? Like we talked about, we've incentivized single motherhood. Right. Yeah. We've incentivized like an entire industry that profits from locking people in prisons. Right. Like... Those kind of things, if we we make incentives for what we do want to perpetuate, it can shift. Like if we're really going to play the game of the systems that we've created effectively, mm-hmm. all it really takes is moving incentives right, around. Right, but here's bit. what you have to take into consideration, is that there are people who are benefiting from a high prison population, from... from uh, dysfunctional families. There are people who profit from this, yeah. you know, and you intentionally. And, so, and, oh, sometimes. absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And so it's like, okay, well, we believe in a free market. We believe in individual freedom. So should they be free to capitalize on the suffering of others and to create systems because they have the power to ge- create these systems that take advantage of others? And and so again, it's it, and that's a slippery, it is a slippery slope, slope too. Like, where does that stop? Right, exactly. Because it's almost because you're talking about groups of people yeah. that have built up this power base over decades, <laughs> generations. Like, I mean, are, are we talking about all-out world war against a certain class <laughs> of people, like class warfare, in order to? Bring well, about let's take it like a, let's make it a little less 
little less complex, a little more simple. Like my mind immediately went to things that people can get addicted to. And what happens if we're like, okay, you know, it's it's pretty good. Let's get rid of this incentive and this incentive. And like, you know what? Coffee's addictive. Let's throw that out the window too. Yeah. Oh. That wouldn't go no. over so well. <laughs> like, I'm ready to fight. I'm people. ready to fight for coffee. <laughs> I will not stand it's for like, it. That industry, literally, and even social media and stuff that's not directly, like, physical, whatever, right. it exists and it's perpetuated and it's growing based off of people's addictive behavior. It exploits addiction. A lot of industries, a lot of companies do that. And so if you're really going to say, we're not going to have a prison system because it exploits you know, people's addiction to drugs, for instance, well, then we have to start addressing all of the other addictions and where we draw the line with those. It gets messy quick. Yeah. yeah. And so I think really where we're going, it seems like where this conversation is going is it's coming right back around to personal responsibility. <laughs> like, I, 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 don't, I don't see how necessarily the government or a system can, can address these adequately. Um, this has right. to, like, and, and you actually, I, I'd say what keyed it in for me was when you mentioned, um, okay. no, <laughs> no that's, that definitely set me off. Um, it was when you uh, when you mentioned, uh, gosh, what was it you said? Uh, it wasn't personal freedom, but you said it. Uh, oh gosh, I can't remember it now. But you, Regarding when we were, when you first started talking just now at the beginning of your segment, there um, you spoke about uh, at at the community level. I'm trying to remember what it was. I. Regardless, it, it doesn't matter. Okay. Um, it, it comes back to personal responsibility in that you, when you, like when you spoke about um, incentivizing, right, uh, single motherhood or incentivizing um, uh, living off of government handouts, <clears throat> these incentives in the end, each individual has a choice whether or not they act on them, even though they are incentives, right? So it, it does come back to personal responsibility and culture. So it, it really, if we're looking at, okay, we want to, you know, at the beginning of the conversation, we talked about, you know, there are too many blacks in prison. We want to lower the number of blacks in prison. So now we have to look at, okay, well, statistically speaking, blacks are committing a lot of crime. And that's why there is a disproportionate amount of blacks in prison as compared to the proportion of their population. So it's like, okay, well, why? And, and of course, there are these economic elements, which we can address to a degree, but it's like the way we've been handling it, the way we've been addressing it seems to have made the problem worse over time. So is it necessarily, oh, we just need to give them more handouts? Is that going to make there be less crime? Um, pretty sure it won't. Um, 
maybe I'm open to it, but right now you only give them the handouts if it's a broken family. <laughs> so like you said, it incentivizes the broken family. So it's like, okay. It's really started to be an awesome thing. Like, hey, single mothers, they could use a little extra help. Right. And then you started having mothers being like, you mean I get help if I kick them out of the house? <laughs> right, right. What if you actually got more for a stable family structure? Yeah. You know, because that's what we want to see. That's right. what we want to support. Right. But we want to uh, propagate, right. not propagate, perpetuate. Right. And then, and then in that case, it may like, <clears throat> and let's say, okay, because I'm not big on uh, socialism. I don't want to necessarily increase the tax burden on people any more than they already have. I, I believe our tax burdens are high enough. What if we took the current structure and we worked it to where, okay, you're a single mom, you get 80% what you used to get. But if there's a father in the home, you get 120% of what you Right. Um, like to, you know, even out the numbers. Like, so it's not, it's not a burden on all the other people who have to pay in any more of a burden, I should say, but now you've got a stable family structure as well. <clears throat> now I don't know necessarily that that's going to lead to the results you want to get because it, right. For all we know, they're better off being single. Well, and you've got people sticking together just for the extra money. And right. And you're still giving them, they're still living off the handout. So it's like, is there, is there personal responsibility? Is there a drive to achieve more? You know, now I would imagine that crime would come down, but it's not necessarily going to prop people out of that economic scenario. You know what I mean? They, by just like, if they're, if they get enough to live, might they just stay there? Not that that's bad. Not that living on less is a bad thing and having less is a bad thing. But if what we're looking at is we want to see upward mobility because we want to see equal outcomes in different places, well, then there, there has to be that you need to address that the culture within these communities. And you have to address this from the standpoint of personal responsibility that people must step into responsibility in like, yes, I want to be there and therefore I'm going to act accordingly. So, so then you start incentivizing responsibility. Right. But and as people step like? in to take responsibility. But what does that look like? What do you mean? <laughs> or how do you incentivize responsibility? Well, the, the way that I, I mean, in, in looking at the way that our markets are set up, I'm like, we have incentivized taking responsibility in form of entrepreneurs making a lot more money than the employee. Right. Like on average, even if you just, you know, I, I want to make a coffee shop in the back of a truck, I drive around and park at places and sell coffee to people, like you're going to make a lot more money than the guy who drives around someone else's truck and sells someone else's coffee. Right. Absolutely. So I'm like, in that way, we have incentivized responsibility. And it's worked out pretty good in seeing the variety of businesses that have popped up and the services and even the, in uh, what do they call it, ingenuity, <laughs> the inventiveness 
the new stuff that's come out of industry because of this system. Right. Like if we really incentivized being an employee, there would be no more jobs. <laughs> right. Everybody would just go try to find a job because it pays more money. And if we capped what entrepreneurs can take home from a company and they have to share profits with everybody, it wouldn't it wouldn't be worth taking the responsibility. You'd right. go to the government for a job or something. Right. Well, and that's that's the benefit of a free market system and why, you know, I feel that socialism isn't a real a useful political system or economic system um, because the free market does allow for people to take responsibility and to, to take the risk of creating a business. Um, mm -hmm. they, the employee doesn't necessarily take the risks that the entrepreneur takes, doesn't necessarily um, uh, really doesn't necessarily have the liability and the responsibility of that business. You know, like as an employee, there's a contractual amount that you're receiving based on your time being worked and the responsibilities within the business, which you pretty much are guaranteed, right? And if you don't get paid, you have recourse against the employer or entrepreneur or whatever you want to call them. But the entrepreneur, the employer doesn't have that. <laughs> if, if he has a loss and makes no money for several months on end, he loses money. He's not guaranteed a paycheck. You know, he, well, even the, what was it, McDonald's? Some lady sued McDonald's because the coffee was too hot. Yes, <laughs> like, I remember Like, coffee's that. supposed to be hot. And then McDonald's, A, had to pay her out a ton of money, not the employee that heated the coffee and served the hot coffee. Right. But McDonald's had to take that on, pay out the settlement, right. and then invest in training and new technology systems and everything in order to make sure that didn't happen again. Hey, do you remember where that happened? What state? No. I don't know. I, Colorado, maybe? I I'm know. thinking it is. And here's my theory. Here's why I think that. I'm, I'm originally from California, right? And coffee that you get from stores and restaurants and everything else was always way too hot, way too hot. Like I would have to let always. my coffee sit for like 30 minutes before I could start sipping it. Right. I just don't have that mouth that some people have where it's like, yeah, 212 degrees, no problem. You know, and you know how they got that mouth. Yeah. <laughs> they threw the cup. Yeah. So I don't have that. I, my, my mouth is too. Um, so, <laughs> but here in Colorado, all the coffee is like, you could drink it as soon as you get it. I'm like, this is, they serve their coffee a lot cooler than California does. So I'm thinking, was that, you know, I just, I thought about it one day. I'm like, I wonder yeah. if that McDonald's case was in Colorado. And that's why all coffee is like lukewarm. It's not lukewarm. I mean, it's still, <laughs> it's still hot, but it's not that hot. No, it's, it's like really the exact temperature that your taste buds can handle exactly. without, singing, without off. singing your mouth. Yeah, exactly. So it's actually, for me, it's the perfect temperature. For someone who's used yeah. to 200 degree coffee, it's probably not cutting it. <laughs> it's probably cold. Yeah, exactly. That's hilarious. It probably was Colorado. Yeah. I should look it up right now. Yeah, I, I'll bet you it was. Okay, so uh, yeah, I think we've, I think we've come to the. Uh, I'd say a, a well. Let's 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 map. Let's it recap. Out. Let's map it out. What. What, how do, if critical theories 
are not effective at addressing inequality and inequity, or, well, not necessarily going to approach inequity, but they're not effective at creating equality and fairness and justice and inclusivity, if they're not effective at that, if the critical theories are not effectively creating that, what is an approach that not only can we create that, but that we can also create, you know, solidarity and peace, like, like undo this polarization, depolarize, bring cooperation and solidarity and all that other stuff. Um, what do you feel is an effective way of approaching this today? Um, you know me, I'm big on principles. I think I probably have talked about it in every episode mm. up until now, but I would get clear on what it is we want to see and then map out if what what's the best path to get there. I mean, with any type of problem solving, there's experimentation, uh, implementation, and then, you know, testing and to see if you are on the right track or not. And it feels as though the conversations that are had today are stuck in conversation. And I've, I've not seen much like action plans or visions of what the world looks like when we fix the problems. Right. And I think when we get clear there and not on a superficial level of like, we want to see like everybody out of prison. Uh, we especially want to see all the black people being, you know, represented equally in prison. But what are the principles that guide the want to have people out of prison? Right. And then sticking with, well, like, and, is and, it fairness? Is it peace, cooperation? Right. Is it justice? You know, and then having that guide the actions to actually creating what it is we do want to see. Right. And, so, and being clear on what the vision is and clear be, on the principles. Yeah. And being mindful of everything else you want. <laughs> Cause right now there's this whole abolish police, right? Because mm -hmm. there will definitely be less people in prison. If you abolish the police, <laughs> however, sure. there's probably some other things that go along with that, that you're not thinking of right now that you probably don't want like more violence, more murder, more theft, more crime in general. Right. Um, so those are probably things you don't want. So you probably want to be pretty clear on, you know, all the things you want. <laughs> or at least the things that you might be affecting. Like yes. Looking at the big picture. Right. Like uh, I was just listening to a podcast the other day where this guy was talking about how we had no idea that by implementing pesticides, which it, it fixed like an entire generation of famine that was happening. Mm -hmm. But adding pesticides they were like this is great and you spray it on there we had no idea that that stuff then went airborne and it has polluted the entire population of even like uncontacted um like people in rural areas that are not they don't even have cell phones or electricity or stuff like that in the middle of nowhere they tested like mother's breast milk 
in like northern Alaska had like all the same pesticides that we use in the U.S. They don't do farming up that no that far north. <laughs> like, right. like, so, a awesome idea. You went in there and you fixed a problem, but we never really thought it all the way through to see what the health issues that would come up about ingesting those those chemicals or what the global impact would be right so being mindful being mindful of the impacts that yeah. that that implement that's that, not just other people somewhere else that's immediately in your community was having the same but see and and here's the thing like i really the as we've gone through this conversation, it's become clearer and clearer to me. My opinion is that I don't think a system is the answer. I don't think government is the answer. Um, I do feel like this is a community problem. It is a community-based solution that it's going to take people coming together with common goals, common uh, morals and ethics, right? To, for one, be willing to look at the true causes of inequity in, 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 in society and then be willing to look at the culture of each group that's experiencing a disparity, right? So, because if you really want to address these things, then you're going to really want to look at the culture and the um, practices and habits. And maybe it's about developing community-based or, or that's what it was. You said, you had said private. You had said, you had, no, you had, you, yeah, it was a, you had said something about, uh, wasn't, it was something about a private business or something. And it, it clicked for me about a, a private approach, meaning not a system of government, not a system of the public, but actually um, systems of private foundations, organizations, com the community itself, even like religious groups and everything else. Because these are, these are groups that will work at the level of community and that aren't going to exploit, you know, you, you start putting it in the level of government and big business and it becomes about, it's always about profit, right? And or control or something else. And that's not necessarily the most effective way of, of approaching this at all. I'd say for one, the, I, one of the first things we have to look at is the fact that we've been divided on this in, in, in its extreme, the polarization, the division that people are experiencing. You have one group, you know, huddling into nationalism and you have another group huddling into these critical theories and postmodernism. And it's, and it's created this division because each defines the other as against what they stand for. And the funny thing is they stand for the same things. Like yeah. everyone wants equality. Everyone wants um uh, inclusiveness. Everyone wants justice, right? Peace. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we that both groups want that, but they want to be right about their approach to it, and by nature want to define the other as a, an enemy and as against those. And so I'd say that that's. I mean, that's the first place. Is 
it's a willingness to be open and think. That's the first place for sure. Yeah, you got to be willing to really be open and to think about how your ideologies are playing out, how they're affecting your relationships, how they're affecting the way you view your fellow human beings. And a willingness to be critical <laughs> of your ideologies and to like really like, okay, wait a minute. What if the presumption was that other people who don't necessarily believe in this ideology are also for equality, are also for inclusivity, are also for justice and fairness? What if that was the fundamental presumption? And then it's like, okay, well, how do we find common ground to create that within a community? And uh, again, a willingness to really look at the causes of these, because these ideologies, I feel like they've they've really missed the they've really missed the point because they've really missed the the causes of 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 the disparities we see, right? It's it has nothing to do with racism. With, I mean, again, not saying that racism doesn't exist. It does. But it's not dramatically affecting the outcomes of people's lives and experiences. It's not because of racism that you have such a high percentage of the prison population are African American. That's not racism that caused that. Maybe a small fraction of those people are there because of some racist activity of some individual. But the accusation is that the system itself is racist because there's an unequal outcome. It's ridiculous. No, that we're living in the outcome of racism. So we're, we're living in the outcome, the outputs, the inequitable result of a system. That's what, that's what they're saying. Uh, did I not say that? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's like people are in prison right now, not due to anyone's, not due to anyone's actual racism. Right. Well, but the argument it may is be like that again from so long ago, due to slavery, right? Due to redlining, no, no, no. Due I, to I know. X, y, and Z, I, yes, and that is we're the, in the racist result. Yes, and that is the theory. In inequal inequity in your outcome equals racist system. Now, right. what I'm saying is that's definitely not the case. But I'm, what I'm what I was saying was that there may be racist individuals who. Because of their actions, some of these people did end up in Okay, so I'm not saying that it's absolutely not the case that some racist didn't take some action that led to someone being in prison and maybe in prison and, and not, uh, not justifiably in prison. You know, there are people in prison who don't necessarily belong there and who didn't necessarily commit the crimes that got them there, right? So, and there may have been racism behind that, but you're talking about one here or there, you know, that it's not a massive system of racism because there's an unequal outcome. You have to be willing to look at the culture of, for one, crime, right? The criminal elements of your culture, of your neighborhood, of your family, of your, uh, of your uh, immediate surroundings, right? And if you're not willing to take a critical look at those things, and really ask the question of how, why is it that there's so much crime within that culture, then you can't really get at a solution. 
if you're just going to blame something that can't be fixed. Because if you're just going to put the label of, well, it's right. systemic racism. Okay. If Blame it's it if, if it's systemic racism, show me where that's where that systemic racism is so we can fix it. Right? Well, that's the that's the catch. Like the the reason why there are such clustered areas of say African Americans is due to redlining. Can't get loans for these certain certain sections and stuff, which has led to less money in schools and less education and then more poverty right. and more violence and everything else. Right. So that's, they're saying that that's, that we're living in the result of it, but that's not something we can go back and No, fix. it's because it doesn't exist anymore. The, you, you, that is right. against the law. So if there are banks engaged in that, well then they should be brought to task and there should be criminal charges and lawsuits. But the reality is that stuff's not happening, you know? So, Right. But they're saying we're still living in the effects of it. That's where the whole systemic racism argument is right, right. now, is that all the stuff that has happened is what yeah, we're it's a, So it's, no one's doing no, it no, anymore, no. It's a, but there's yeah, still it's, these... It's a, it's, a, it's a way of creating a, fa- a, a fallacy, right? A, 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 false, um, a false fact in that what you do is you point to like, oh, look at, you know, back in the 30s, look at all this racism. Look, back in 18, the 1880s, oh my God, look at how, you know, Africans were being treated. And then you bring it back into today and you go, and that's why things are so bad. And that's just ridiculous because we are not, our culture is not what it was in 1880 or in 1930 or even in 1960 or 1970. We're in 2020 and this is a different world. And it is a different country. And a lot of policies have changed over time from the, from the inception of this country till now. It's been in constant flux. So to presume and to project some past inequity as if it is the result of what we see or as if it is the cause of what we see now is it's it's a there's it's a false premise it's 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 a fallacy it, it doesn't it doesn't logically line up you can't it that why because there's too many variables or well, something? yeah how do you again let's look at uh let's look at the progression of like let's you you were talking about redlining earlier and actually when there was jim crow laws which were segregational and that was systemic racism that did exist let's say back in the 50s what's interesting is that if you look at the pace of of black families and the wealth that they were generating and the jobs that they were generating and the 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 uh, uh what do you call it the quality of life that they were generating was outpacing all other ethnic groups, including whites. This is while there were laws of segregation in place. Right? So it's even back then when there was systemic racism, you had this upward mobility that was occurring. Okay? Now, all those laws are gone. They've been gone. And yet, what you've seen is a decline since the, since the mid to late 60s till now, it's been a decline. How was there upward mobility in the 40s and 50s when there were 
segregational laws and discriminatory laws and things in place that truly were systemic racism. And now that we've eliminated all of those, and now there's a downward trend in quality of life and in income and all these other things. And you got to wonder now, again, this, this has actually started to come back up. So um, I would say maybe from the mid to late sixties to let's say the nineties, the late nineties, early two thousands, it was, it was kind of a descending thing, but we have noticed that there is some upward mobility occurring, especially within the last, you know, uh, last couple of years at least. Um, but it's to blame it on something that no longer exists. Okay. Fact. People start off with nothing and create a lot. There are immigrants who come to this country and within one generation, within, like they come here in their teens and create a high level of success for themselves. With it before they even have children, you know, or before their children become adults. So it's because the opportunity is there for anyone to excel. So if an immigrant can come to this country and create a high level of success in one generation, how, why wouldn't people who, who are here already be able to generate that? And I'm talking about people who come here with nothing. That it happens, right. you know. Not with a loan. Yeah, no, not with you know. No. Any of the savings or yeah. that stuff. They build themselves up. So the the opportunity is there. So to say that, like, I mean, it'd be just as ridiculous to say, well, because my great 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 grandpa was a slave, that's why I'm not doing well. That's definitely not personal responsibility, right? Well, the other way that. I've heard it talked about is because uh, so many white families in this country owned slaves, they were able to amass a significant wealth that still gets passed down or land or something right. like that. It's the yeah, same go, story, but it's hey, on the other side. Go around side. and ask all your white friends all the, about all the wealth they inherited. <laughs> Again, you're talking about the 1%. Nobody's inheriting <laughs> right, shit. Right. I didn't get shit. Did you get shit? <laughs> Like I didn't inherit nothing. No, I'm, I'm hoping for some some stuff, but I don't yeah. see what maybe like a bike, a guitar, a, a set of <laughs> drums, maybe, um, uh, some some <laughs> and, and some debt. Yeah, no, I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to inherit my dad's debt. Um, but the, I mean, the vast majority of people start with nothing. You know, they nobody's. I mean, to to make that statement that oh, all white people are getting these inheritances from their. Sl- that is the most ridiculous thing like I've ever I, heard. I know one trust fund baby. And he had enough to buy a house. And that's it. <laughs> and then he kind of generated, right. you know, paid in some right. equity, got enough for down payment, bought another house. And I'm like, well, shit, man. If I had enough to get one house, like start storing all your mm-hmm. wealth, all the money you pay to rent, that's like the number one uh, expense for people right. in this country. Is the freaking rent check, especially if you live in places like New York, San Francisco, LA, even Denver. Like places are getting really expensive to rent. If you're paying that every month into your 
you can amass an enormous amount of wealth. That doesn't, like, I know people that never got a handout, that work shit jobs, that that they were able to save up five, ten, twenty thousand dollars over the course of what their twenties, buy a house, and now they own like four or five. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's um. And yeah. and again, that and that has to do with the culture of, of their culture, because whether it was their family, or their peers, or the the area they grew up in, there there's already that approach to live like again delaying gratification right um having a work ethic saving money like all of those things have to be in place for you to make that initial purchase right and to create that wealth for yourself but people do that starting from nothing all the time i I was hoping you would touch on that you didn't but is the personal responsibility the lack of personal responsibility that comes with those narratives. Right. So, Oh like yeah. The, the victimness Absolutely. to blame it on, right. To blame it on racism, to blame it on the systems, redlining, uh, slavery, whatever the, the explanation is to blame it on that is to remove all responsibility from me. Right. Right. I am blaming it on the system. That's not my fault. I'm here and it sucks. And I'll never leave right. here. And what's interesting about because that? Because that's What's interesting going. about that is that's disempowering the individual, but these philosophies are based on groups having power over other groups. So it's dis. We're just pointing the finger at a different. Yeah, impression. but we di- we actually disempower the individual. All the power dynamic comes from the group one group of people having power over another group and disempowering the individual to have power with their choices, responsibility to have power with what they create in their life. Right? So what's more powerful? I created all my circumstances and conditions where I'm a victim. Well, and even whether it's create or not, because now you're getting into the metaphysical, regardless of whether you create them, Right? Or whether, like, it's not about the circumstance and conditions themselves as if you are dreaming them up and bringing them into reality, which we could have a conversation <laughs> about that because there is a metaphysical element to that and we could have a conversation. But let's assume that circumstances and conditions are outside of your control and they just occur. The responsibility is in how you deal with it, how you approach it, how you overcome your obstacles. That's where the responsibility lies. You always have choice. To lay down and be a victim would be you disempowering yourself. To say, I can't overcome this obstacle is you disempowering yourself. To say there are obstacles that aren't even necessarily there is you disempowering yourself. Like, how can you do anything about slavery? How can you do anything about slavery? <laughs> you, I mean, well, there's no I mean, except, way you're going back in time. To well, stop I mean, it. well, no, it does still exists, not in this country necessarily, but it does exist in the world. So if you're, I mean, if you're really a social justice warrior and you really want to get out there and end slavery, well, you got to go into some other countries because there's still, in fact, today, there are more slaves than there were during the entire, in, than there were 
in the entirety of, of the history of slavery in America. There are currently active more slaves in the world right now than there were in the entire historical, uh, the, the, the entire history of slavery in the United States. Collectively? Like all the years of slavery, all put together, all those slaves, you can count them up. There are currently more slaves in the world now than there ever were in the, in the U.S. So, and again, slavery is an issue, and it's not an issue here anymore, but we're making it an issue by making people victim to it. And by... And by it just reminds me of the people that are like, I'm going to go donate money to these countries in Africa or these, you know, these really poor people. They're starving. We need to do something about it. And I'm like, but there are starving people right here in the U.S. Right. There are starving people on reservations, which are kind of, you know, not necessarily U.S., but still kind of the U.S. Um, I'm like, what has you wanting to go all the way over there and fix a problem? Versus like being present to where you are and what's going on here. Right. I feel like it's the same type of conversation. Like, are you really going to be pissed off of slavery and how it's affected your inheritance and your education maybe and where you live and everything else? Well, you could take that and actually go do something about slavery somewhere else. Right. That exists today. Anyway. So. So. Full circle. Full circle. It's, it's <laughs> again, it's funny. I don't know how many of these conversations are going to end in personal responsibility. Um, I have a feeling. But it, it, it is also going to take a, a level of intention and mindfulness to really bridge the gaps here, to, to bring people back together because there is such polarization right now. So, you know, first thing is we have to stop seeing people of different ideas as as enemies, as like, well, I'm an anti-racist, and if you don't believe all in, my, in all my ideologies, and you don't say the things I say, and you don't belong to the groups I belong to, and you don't read the books I read, and you don't act the way I act, well, then you are a racist, right? Um, or the whole mentality of if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Well, that, I mean, in, in a sense, you are. <laughs> but right, <laughs> no, but, that's the no middle ground but, again. That's a polarization. Right, it's either you're with me or you're right, against but, me. But right now, everyone's part of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like it, if, if we're going to, if we're going to completely divide, um, again, a, a joke and but at the same time it is uh it is indicative of the level of polarization we're seeing. you know what i mean it it is apparent that there is a just an extraordinary level of, of animosity hatred and anger between people who really want the same thing in my opinion again we take these principles that that we that we talked about at the beginning, nobody's against those things. Nobody's for racism. Nobody's for inequality. Nobody's for, and again, yes, I do realize there are some, but we're talking about a vast minority. Like we're talking about so few people that they have no impact. Like I know for a fact that it isn't a, a, a bunch of 
racist, people who truly believe in their racial superiority over another race that has created this division in this that has millions, tens of millions of people opposed to and demonizing tens of millions of other people. Like, that's not the work of a couple of, you know, white supremacists or KKK members. They, they make up such a minute fraction of the population. And again, it's, it's quite apparent yeah. what's creating it is, these, is this absolutism in my philosophy is right, your philosophy is wrong. If you don't agree with my philosophy, you're against me and you're the enemy and you're racist. And it, this, it's in its, by its nature, by, by the, the, the tenets of these philosophies, of these doctrines, there is only polarization. There is only, either you're all in or you're the enemy, like you said. You know, it's, uh, if you're not with me, you're against me. So this is why personal responsibility is the key to all of this. Because you can't write in laws, statutes, anything, to control people's minds. Mm -hmm. You can't say, like... You can't be polarized. You can't have an anti-polarization. No, but what you what you <laughs> can do is uh, start television programming. <laughs> so, if it starts there to first see people as not the enemy, that they just hold a certain set of ideas as different as your ideas, and you can then look underneath the ideas and see why those ideas are there responsibility right. and, you're not the enemy let's come together and talk about this wow we want the same things how do we work together to create right. them that's the well, process it's not i'm got my idea you got your idea let's fight about yeah. it and then forever perpetuate right. the war. and that's, that's not going to get anybody no, and that it. requires also critical thinking see i would say that probably one of the reasons that we should have named this critical thinking. Not <laughs> One of the reasons why there's so much possession by ideologies is I, I think, in my opinion, that there's an insecurity of people. Um, they want they they want and need acknowledgement. They want and need a, an authority, and when you have an ideology that tells you, oh, well, if you act this way and you think this way and you talk this way, you're a good person. And all the people who aren't doing this, they're the bad people. If you buy, if you see yourself as a good person, you're going to be like, oh, well, I'm a good person. So I'm going to start talking like that. And I'm going to start acting like that. And you, so you don't even really question the ideology. You don't even really know the nature of it, really. Because you have, or that it is, that it is an ideology. ideology. Yeah. You're not studying it. You're just seeing, well, everyone on TV is doing it. Everyone, you know, you just start following along because you want people have this this need to be like the group to 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 assimilate to to conform, right? Um, to fit in, to be accepted, right. to be like part of the group, part of the tribe. Right. So there's other principles that need to be embodied in order for us to move forward. One of them is is courage, like people willing to be courageous enough to be authentic to be 
genuine, to be themselves and to think for themselves and to not need an authoritative ideology in order to latch onto or be possessed by. And, and, and that takes, you know, that takes, not only does it take uh, courage, but it's, it'll take some, uh, some confidence. It will take um, being willing to not look good be or to look bad, <laughs> to be wrong, right? <laughs> it, it's, it, it takes a willingness to be accepting of yourself and in your wrongness and in your not looking so goodness, right? It, it, it really requires that because then you can be accepting of others. And there is not going to be any coming together until there is an acceptance of self without needing to conform acceptance of self when I am authentic or so that I can be authentic, right? Acceptance of self so that I can, I don't need an authority to tell me my ideas and acceptance of self so that I can think for myself and not necessarily hold the ideas of a group that identify in a way that I think I want to identify it. Well, if all the good people think that, if all the good people say those things, if all the good people act that way, well, I'm a good person, so I'm going to do all those things, right? That It, it requires a, a sense of self and, and, uh, and confidence and courageousness and authenticity and, again, responsibility, right? So... And just in generally not taking yourself so seriously. Absolutely. Like, I could totally sum almost all of what you said up in just like, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. doesn't really matter that much. I'll figure it out later. Oh, you're a person too. You're different. I'm different. Ah, whatever. It's okay. I don't like the strictness that comes along with ideologies like this is really why ideologies or I should say when ideologies become a problem. Yeah. Because if you affix so firmly to it as if it is a fact. And that's the possession element. That's why when I say being possessed by an ideology, that's what I mean, is that you, you can't separate yourself from it. You are, you've completely embodied all of the, I don't want to necessarily say teachings, but all the principles of it. Um, And you won't let go because you, you are, you you are in a space in the mind of believing that mm. it's what's right, right? I've actually seen people identify with ideology. Mm. Like, oh, I am a X, yep. Y, and yep. Z. Not I believe in X, right. Y, and Z. Yeah. I, <laughs> That's totally yeah, different. I am a this, I am a that. The, the bumper sticker people. Yeah. Bumper sticker yeah, culture. Bumper sticker culture. When you wear your personality on your <laughs> bumper. Um, okay. I think, what do you think? You think we came to a good place with this? Okay. Yeah, Excellent. Exhausted. Yeah. Pretty exhausted. Exhaustive. Like we've exhausted. Oh. I think all the thoughts that we talked about a little bit before and, and on this call, I don't think there's much that we really left out. Um, right. I, and I really do appreciate you letting me kind of play advocate for a second. And, right. and pushing you about the the, the race stuff because I've I've got my understandings of uh, racism 
and mm-hmm. and the effects and inequities and stuff that are playing out. And I'm like, I I really wanted to push you to see what you thought about all of history having had racism and how it's playing out today. And I think the biggest part to take away from this is the personal responsibility. You have the choice to either live in that box of being victim and having power over, like someone has power over you and that's why none of this is is working out for you. Mm. Or like I've even... I've even felt bad for what I do have <laughs> sometimes instead of right. fortunate and in, 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 in a space of gratitude and stuff. And it's like, that's being lost too. I don't want to tell people that I make money at all <laughs> right? doing what I do and like living how I live. It's like, I've actually had people pissed off at me for not working hard enough for getting <laughs> quote unquote for not working handouts. Is- like for instance, right. my mom is it's like such a I wanna there's a word for it, but she's resourceful. Extremely <laughs> resourceful. And to the point where when I went to college and I changed my major halfway through, I was in college for like five and a half years. When I right. was done, I owed a thousand dollars. And student day. Nice. <laughs> and I'm nice. like, I don't tell people that my mom was like, because I don't like, I got African American scholarships and grants and stuff. I got Native American scholarships and grants. I got Italian American scholarships. Like, <laughs> my mom was like, some of this and he's some of that and he's some of this. <laughs> Just like, <laughs> help me find all of this stuff and people that would support monetarily. And I'm like, I tell people that like, oh, the privilege that comes along with being like, what, every race ever? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like my intersectionality, like, is <clears throat> anyway, I'm like, it's, it's something that is extraordinarily important is how you carry your history. Because it plays out in the future. And it's either playing out as I'm a victim or playing out as like, this is me and owning it and yeah. doing what you, you got to do. Everyone's got to struggle, man. It's just how do you deal with your struggle? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause there is it, it. Well, we went through this in the last one, the path to freedom, right? Mm-hmm. That there, there is suffering. I'm glad we did that one first. Yeah, there is suffering and uh, there are very few who don't have it and who don't experience it. And i i Besides personal responsibility, I'll also say that it's our, it is extremely important for us to also empower others, to not label others as victims, to not put them in a place of being victim, to not, just to stop perpetuating a victim mentality, especially pushing it on another person. You know, say, oh, well, you're a victim. You're a victim. You're a victim. You're a victim. Like, you are taking away a person's power. Now, granted, I do believe in free will and I do believe in choice and I do believe that each individual has the capacity to think for themselves and to realize, like, wait a minute, I ain't no victim. (laughs) You're calling me a victim, but I don't see me as a victim. But when you do it to a five-year-old, you know, it's, it, beca- it becomes embodied. And 
and it, and they don't necessarily they take your word as truth, you know, especially if you're a parent, you know, or a teacher, and you're telling you're a victim, you're a victim, you're a victim. Oh, and you, you're the oppressor, you're the oppressor, you're you know, <laughs> they're doing this to kids, um, and that's terrible. It's terrible, you know, to 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 literally to imprinting them. psychology, yeah. Uh, making them wrong, disempowering them, making them victim and victimizer. Five-year-old kids. They're victims and they are victimizers. They aren't oppressors or oppressed. I mean, did you feel... Not yet. Uh, yeah. Did you feel <laughs> oppressed at five? <laughs> no, man. I didn't even know the word. <laughs> exactly. I mean, if I did, I'd have been calling mom and dad the oppressors and not letting me get everything I wanted at the store. And that's kind of what... This is child abuse. And, that, and that's kind of where we're at. That's kind of where we're at. Because yeah. that's, that's almost the same approach that, this, that we're seeing. Is that, you know, I, well, I want this. Okay. Well, other people who have that had to work for that. <laughs> and that's... You know, like nothing stopping yeah, you. Go, go get, get it. it. Go for it. You know? There are no obstacles. No, it's it's sexist. It's racist, and I can't achieve because of sexism and racism. I'm a victim. I'm a victim. I'm a victim. I feel, again, at that level, it's it's that is your mentality, your mindset. That victim, that choice to be a victim over that choice to be responsible, is holding more people back than it. And it and I'm amazed that it's just being perpetuated at the level that it is and that it's being multiplied and that it's, I mean, I, I don't know. I guess I, I figured I've been doing this a long time and I always saw humanity kind of moving up and away <laughs> from being victims and, and, and choosing responsibility. Like I saw like humanity moving along this progressive line of per, you know, personal responsibility and personal empowerment and, and courageousness and authenticity and and uh, trust and trustworthiness. Like I just I I kind of just saw humanity as like yes, it's it's going to go up, it's going to go up. And then a couple of years ago, all of a sudden it all, it seemed like it started going down. <laughs> and all of a sudden, we're like it's like we we did a nosedive. All of a sudden, everyone wanted to be a victim, <laughs> and everyone wanted to make everyone else into a victim. Um, and, and I think I, I, if we look around, I think that you can see where it's heading and where it's gotten us. Do we want this? And, and also, it's incredibly important to make sure that we all, we're not labeling being a victim as a bad thing. No. Being a victim, the choice of an experience of a past event, it's not happening now, it has happened, that can empower people incredibly to drive their life and to like change lives and really like create and maintain amazing things in the world. But just like any other ideology, any other belief or worldview, it doesn't work all the time. Even like I'm the best looking, most handsome, amazing, richest, best person on the world. You may think, wow, that's a good belief to hold because you're holding yourself up here. And yeah, well, yeah, time. I was going to say, I don't know, That's that sounds like that could be a little bit of uh, narcissism In and certain ego scenarios, yeah. it can be very yeah. bad. So it's like, yeah. when is the belief that we're attached to in the moment 
effective for what we're trying to create. That's why it's important to looking at the principles and our goals and just the foundation that we operate from. Right. Otherwise, all this stuff up here is ineffective. Right. And and looking at the, the impacts, you know, on the people around us and on ourselves and on our communities and things like that. It's all. It, it's definitely. It's important to be mindful and to and to be able to think for oneself and to think about things and to. Be critical and analyze and dissect. Be and discover. Yeah. Don't, I'd say one of the most dangerous places to be is to be in like, I know and I'm right. And it, humility is definitely, <laughs> is definitely a valuable what is that virtue. That's saying, uh, the more you know, the more you know you don't know. Yeah. Well, so my, my, fa know my, my favorite, my favorite. <laughs> Remember, it was Socrates. It was Socrates who said that. And, so and, and my, my favorite is the quote from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, where they were reading about Socrates. And he said, he said, a uh, man who truly knows something knows he knows nothing. They look at each other. That's us, dude. <laughs> <laughs> That's my my favorite my favorite Socrates uh, reading by Bill and Ted. That's awesome. I mean, it, it's it's highly applicable right now. Yeah. Well, it. I mean, I it, Well, it's valuable. It's valuable to be in question rather than to assume you have the. It's it's not only valuable; it's powerful, because there's in in a question there are infinite possibilities. Right, but in the answer, there's only one possibility. So if you, yeah, one. there's just the one. There's just the one. So if you sit on like, yes, this is the answer, and this is right, and I am right, and you sit in your righteousness, you've limited your possibility and your potential for the future. And I've I've actually had people ask me like, oh, what, what do you believe? Are you like, are you for vaccines, anti-vaccine? And I'm like, based on the information I have today. I'm working with the belief that X, Y, Z, whatever the answer is, right. right? And they're like, but, but you don't know. <laughs> like, I know I'm running with something that's working so well. <laughs> <laughs> but that could change at any minute. Right. Any new information comes in. I'm like, well, I'm going to try something else out. For a right. and I'm like, that is incredibly powerful of a space to be yeah. in, to be like, I know this to be true for right now. And I'm going to trust it and utilize this, but I'm not going to have to prove it so much and attach or, to it and never let it go. Or be right about it. Right? <laughs> be right about yeah, because that's it. That's it. I, I've kind of been right about it sometimes, right. but it's a good practice for me yep. anyway to like, I don't have to be right today. Let me be open to listening. That's, that's a powerful spot. All right, I think we've beat this horse. Beated. All righty. Well, thank you very much, Gingy, for this conversation. It was uh, extremely enjoyable. And I, I, you, I look forward to our next conversation. Banama, banama, nama. Banama, nama.